Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with psychologist and arts therapist Kathy Malchiotti on trauma and the expressive arts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And we are kicking off an exciting new series called Attachment and the Expressive Arts. And in order to start that series, we have a big name leader in the field of expressive arts joining us today, and that is Kathy Malchiotti. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Malchiotti. She is a psychologist and expressive arts therapist specializing in traumatic stress. She's the executive director of the Trauma-Informed Practices and Expressive Arts Therapy Institute, where she has provided online and live webinar training to over 20,000 practitioners around the world. She is a popular presenter and workshop leader. She's done over 700 keynotes throughout the U.S., Canada, Asia, Europe, Middle East, and Australia. She's authored 20 books, including the best-selling book, Trauma and the Expressive Arts, Understanding Children's Drawings, and she also has edited a book about using expressive arts with attachment difficulties in children. She has been also called upon to consult with many organizations in terms of disaster recovery. She's worked with the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the U.S. Department of Defense, Kennedy Center, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and many universities, hospitals, and healthcare agencies throughout the world. In addition, she's been on a variety of other news outlets. She's been um, featured by Time Magazine, CNN, Cosmopolitan, Natural Natural Living, and U.S. News and World Report, just among a few. So we are thrilled to be having her join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And she will be coming right up with us just in a few seconds. So hang tight. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast as I continue this fascinating conversation with Dr. Kathy Malchiotti. Thank you for joining us again. It's great to be here again. Yes. So in terms of what we were talking about last time, you were sharing a lot of the the, uh, neuroscience behind why expressive therapies are so effective and how it's a way to access uh, implicit memory. You know, we talk a lot about trauma, attachment trauma as well, can be nonverbal. It's not always something we can put into words and and how expressive arts uh, allow us to do that. So you shared some great information related to, to neuroscience and movement and bilateral stimulation of the brain and right brain. Another thing that I have seen you write about 
that we didn't mention is you have said that art therapy in terms of working on attachment issues is based, the effectiveness would be based on what we know from neuroscience, but also object relations theory. And I was interested in having you talk a bit about that, how uh, expressive arts can relate to object relations theory. I thought that was an interesting thing that you've written about. What did I say about that? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not a really an object relations expert. I think you were talking about um, art as transitional objects and, yeah, you know, true. art, you know, carrying across the relationship and things like that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, Winnicott, of course, said that. And I think that another thing that's really true about this work that there is something that's expressed that can be tangible right so if it's a visual image certainly that can be tangible whether it's a drawing or a painting or a clay object or something created uh, but where I've kind of moved from that <laughs> is into the more the multi-dimensional since I wrote that because that that particular chapter was written quite a few years ago now and so that's certainly still holds true. But what I think about, there's a continuum of things that people can engage in that might not be as tangible, but they are as valuable as something, you know, an experience that makes an impact. And yeah. they really fall into four different areas. One is, again, the movement and the rhythm. And, you know, that can be uh, us moving together, mirroring each other in some way, uh, gesturing in response to each other, uh, anything that's along those lines of movement oriented. Then sound, which is music making. Uh, and, you know, that can be drumming, percussion, but it can also just be humming and, you know, making sounds together. A lot of times I'll just have people, uh, and I'll even do this with children, just uh, one thing we do all day long is make a sigh. We sigh all the time. I see them sigh, just have them sigh again, like, oh, see what kind of sigh that is. Can you show me that in movement? Where is that in your body? If you could put that in a doodle on a piece of paper, what color would it be? What shapes, what mark making would it be? Now, if you could tell me a story about that picture, what would that be? So, you know, sound can be an intro to everything. Storytelling is another area. So that could be just the image again, helping to tell a story about something, or it can be an enactment. You know, play therapists work a lot with puppets, for example, you know, to tell a story, to help children tell stories. So, you know, that could be another way. Um, and then the other one is has to do with the regulation again is silence is how do we help the body silence when we need to uh, because we're overactivated or we're feeling angry or anxious. And that's true for both the parent and child and attachment issues. You know, how do we get to that place where we can just quiet down the body and maybe we can do that together in some way. So, you know, I think, yeah, the transitional object can be a really important piece and certainly it's something that, you know, we can work on in a session but there are all these other moving parts, too, that I think have to happen. So, um, and again, I think play therapy does this really well. They're, you know, very similar to what I had talked about with expressive arts therapy, that there's an integrative approach to all of this. 
and we have to pay attention to who's in front of us and what they resonate with and what mm-hmm. they get a benefit from in terms of expression as a healing and restorative experience. Yes, another term that you talked about related to attunement and mindsight, if we reflect yep. back on some of those neurobiology concepts, was the third hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk yeah. tell listeners like what that even means? I, I bet many of them have never heard that expression. Yeah, it's a really old term in art therapy, which I yes. think is... is Art therapy can tend to be very focused on what's created. So it's not very relational when it's like that. But if there's a person like the therapist, for example, or even the parent or caretaker who, uh, caregiver who um, is helping in some way, is supportive in some way of what that child is creating, is expressing. And in a way that's sensitive, not intrusive to the experience, that's kind of the short definition of what the third hand is. Now, there are some people, you know, trying to investigate uh, when we think about attunement and, you know, in neuroscience, and these are all things, I'm not a neuroscientist, but there's a term mirror neurons, Mm -hmm. if we're doing that kind of a relational intervention. So say, you know, a child's having a hard time making a clay figure, they're trying to make a picture, um, uh, an image of a a human in some way or an animal, and they're having a hard time making the legs. So the person is the third hand and helping them create that, that it's okay to help support them in that process of creation if it, you know, makes it a positive attachment experience. So I think that's kind of the shorthand for that term. Yes, yes. It's an interesting term. It's very old. It's probably 30 or 40 years old. And yeah, that's the one thing I like about um, the art therapy approach more than just the creation of things. It's that, again, I say that relationship is everything that really is the curative factor in whatever we introduce. So there's all different kinds of techniques and approaches, a therapist or facilitator, childcare worker, or even the parent themselves can introduce. But the relationship, if the relationship is co-regulating and attuning and creates what we call so synchrony, it's kind of that Mm -hmm. rhythm between, you know, one person and the other that creates that positive connection, then that's everything right there. So we can do it through art you know we can do it yeah 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 uh one of the examples i remember that you brought up and i share these because examples are what make these concepts really stick in my mind so i figure it's probably the same for others but somebody was making something with clay and the arm kept falling off and (laughs) you you found a way to help with that and um i just loved that um example Um, well and you know what's interesting too is those are the moments in working with children over the years if you see them and and sometimes i've had this opportunity where unfortunately they need to come back to a treatment setting and they need to come back to a shelter they need to come back to some kind of program do they remember what you've said not necessarily but they remember what they experienced and they will remember 
if you help them, they swear, you know, oh, you helped me that day reattach that arm to this puppet, or yeah. you helped me that day, you know, to really start to make the clay soft. You know, you showed me how to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you know, remember, they remember uh, those kinds of tangible sensory based experiences that really speaks to the fact that once we introduce that successfully, that becomes an impression, you know, and, and sometimes we wonder as therapists, did anything that we did have an impact that was positive that helped, you know, change that person in any way and, and help them feel more restored and repaired. So, you know, the, that third hand again, because it's relational, yes, an important piece. So that's, a, that's something that parents and caregivers need to be introduced to when they're. Yes, yes. And you alluded to this earlier, but it's so important for us to discuss it further, I think, was that you talked about not interpretation. So like this idea that somebody made something, now we're going to interpret what that means, but you're broadening it out to, you're, you're responding to the art expression. You're responding to the whole process. This was something in, when I started training in, in Santre, being a beginner, I'm like, oh, it's all about, you know, there, there's something they're going to make in the sand with like the fence is going to mean this and this is going to mean that. And then you'll just, you know, you'll have this big interpretation and entering the training. I was like, well, what did they go for first? Well, how many things did they pick up? Like how, how many things did they pick up? What was the order they put them in the sand? So it was much, not that that doesn't matter what I was speaking of formerly, but really it's the whole process of creation and expression. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I, in art therapy, unfortunately, in, in, at least in my training, and I, I'm pretty sure it's changed over the years now, there, there was a lot of emphasis on somehow magically knowing what something meant. And, and everything is, uh, is in a context. There's our personal experiences. There's, you know, what we grow up with within our family and extended family. There's value systems. There's culture. And a lot of that was, you know, and I think everybody was had good intentions, but they were not able to ever explain to me why that this, you know, I, I, that you could possibly know what something meant. We don't. I mean, in children's drawings, actually, the only thing we know is actually when they're more or less developmentally appropriate for the age and stage. And that is a very short period of time. Actually, it's, you know, from about four or five till about 12. And and even that's a little bit hard to nail down. Uh, So, you know, but we don't know. uh, Universal symbols are not what they seem to be because a lot of them have come from Western thinking. So, you know, but I think there are people with good intentions that try to look at it that way and they are successful maybe because the relational piece is there so strongly that that works itself in. But to me, I I don't see where the curative factor is in being able to interpret something. If the person can come up with a story that seems resonant, that seems reparative, that seems restorative, then that's where I think their own interpretation, if you want to call it that, 
creates that container for feeling healed and feeling witnessed, you know, because you're there witnessing what they've created, what they've moved. So Santre, what they've placed in the sand to create that story. And then as they're able to articulate that, even if it's just a story that doesn't really say, uh, doesn't use the first person in it, that it's a third person kind of story, you know, where they have, they're telling a story that's really about themselves, but that story has a reparative. You can see, oh, they're more enlivened. They feel more joyful. They're curious to go on to explore in the sand. Then we know, you know, that that narrative has been really important and they want to explore that more. But for me to decide what that is, Personally, I feel that's impossible. <laughs> there may yes. be people that are quite skilled with that, and you know they may exist. But I think in trauma work, it, it's um, it's still back to the implicit communication because the explicit has been lost, especially if it's a very young child, and now they're maybe an older child or, or adolescent. They don't know exactly what happened. None of us remember exactly what happened, and is that important? It's more about dealing with with their sensations, their experiences internally, uh, and how they decide now to narrate that in a healing way. Yes, yes. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's an interesting question because Santre, of all the different kinds of ways you can work expressively, is really evocative. I mean, all the different choices that you have Uh in terms of the figures and elements that you can put. And then, see, to me, I always look at the Santre as there's another great sensory experience because it's tactile. There's all this touch involved. And what does that uh mean also to that individual to be able to work in the sand and create in the sand and feel that sand and you know some therapists allow them mix water in the sand and and all of that is a really important experience yes yes so you know as we're winding down here and our focus is attachment i wanted to um discuss the topic of dyad art therapy you Mm -hmm. had you know some where you are actually um working with a a parent and child together Mm -hmm. i thought maybe we could talk about uh, there were some examples i read about if if you have others that you like better that's fine too but the scribble chase and the bird's nest drawing i found i thought both of those were interesting i still uh uh, resonate with that really simple scribble drawing which is you know have Having, you know, so if you have a parent and a child and, you know, have a, depending on your space, nice big piece of paper. I like markers because it felt markers because they move more easily than a crayon, a crayon, but you can use, you know, whatever drawing materials. One gets to be the leader and the other is the follower, you know, so that, you know, say the child gets to be the leader and they make the mark and you try as well on that paper with your felt marker to follow them. Sometimes I have to model this too, so the parent can get involved in it and just, you know, let let the child be the leader and I'll be the follower. And then you reverse roles. So a lot of stuff happens. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, uh, uh, the comments and sometimes there's just a lot of play going on and laughter and attunement and synchrony with each other. Sometimes there's conflict because, yes. oh, man, he went too fast or, you know, he scribbled over my lines. And sometimes the parent's the one that's saying that, actually, you know. So, you know, all those dynamics emerge from that. But, you know, basically it should be a fun, enlivening 
relational activity that they can do together. Now, another thing they can do together, sometimes I, I do bilateral work. So having, you know, teaching them some different ways you can work bilaterally with both hands. Like we can, we can go like in a circle and then we can go in a circle in another direction. We can do this on paper. So, you know, to both have them be doing that at the same time on their own pieces of paper, but aware of each other, you know, more, more that the parent is aware of what the child's doing or just do air drawings together so they look at each other and just mirror each other you know making up and down movements or right and left movements and you know getting all that like large body muscle uh going but the mirroring is the really important thing so you don't even have to have anything you know they can hold two drawing instruments in their hands but they're drawing in the air in different ways so sometimes the therapist has to model that one another one you can just dip down down to your toes and go up and be a tree, you know, like branching out, you know, so that they get that big movement going. So some of those things are pretty easy to do, but it gets that attunement in looking at each other and seeing each other, responding to each other. Yeah. Uh, in most cases, it's really important for the child to be the leader, but a lot of times the parents need to be the leader. <laughs> it's really yes. interesting because they, they need that feeling of, uh, of being able to, you know, be the leader and, and be the, this, the uh, control of, you know, the child responding to them. Yes. Do you have a whole family type of activity that you have liked, you know, maybe an assessment or something when you first start working with a family that you like to do? Uh, I'm not really big on assessments, but what I like to have them do sometimes within the family is are, are all these little scribble chases where they pair off with somebody in the family and then look at those scribbles and see if they can find something in the scribble. So maybe they see an animal, right? So I say, oh, well, color that in. So if I looked at it, I'd, I'd, I'd see that animal in that scribble. So, you know, if you have, you know, four or five people in the family, you'll get a few different drawings. And then I have them cut them out and actually put them together, you know, in, in kind of a mural or a large kind of uh, drawing and add things to it. And that's where they start to come up with a story, you know, start to, you know, as they're working through that. And I say, you know, if this is uh, if this could be a story and all these different characters you created could talk, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, can you tell me a story from that? Or sometimes I say if they're they've created a bunch of maybe animals or figures, maybe they're human figures here. Let me draw on a piece of paper an island. Now, if you put all of them on an island, how would they live together? You know, that, that one's really interesting because sometimes families for various reasons become islands. They're separate from the world. They're not sharing their problems or struggles or getting support from the outside. That happens a lot in actually families, you know, have a child maybe who has cancer or serious illness, you know, and they become kind of isolated from everyone else because they're putting all their energy into trying to caretake for that child. Uh, but they do become this island. Well, how do we handle things on that island? You know, how does the island have a song? Do they, you have a motto? Do you have mm -hmm. words that you live by? Mm -hmm. All those kinds of questions. So I guess in a sense, that could be an assessment because you start to learn, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of what they're struggling with or what they find strength from. I think we leave that out of the equation a lot here that we need to look at a lot of these sensory-based expressive ways of working as resilience building and empowering 
is one thing I've been examining a lot in how I talk to people and what I want for them in terms of their own repair and restoration is about capacity. And in the literature, you're probably familiar with this, we've talked a lot in trauma about what we call window of tolerance, you mm -hmm. know, and, and window of tolerance is this area of being able to cope or endure being maybe hyperactivated, anxious, angry, you know, all this kind of disruptive, panicky emotions, worry, which, you know, is real. And then also sometimes we dip into, depends on, you know, all this is normal behavior and abnormal circumstances. We dip into being numb or withdrawn or depressed or dissociated. So this window of tolerance is, you know, trying to expand between those, you know, have more of that tolerance, endurance, coping. But I don't like to use that word tolerance with people who have sustained a lot of abuse, assault, <laughs> terrible things, complex trauma. Mm -hmm. I've thought more about it as a circle of capacity and how do we find self-regulation, co-regulation with others in positive ways? So how do we help a caregiver or parent expand that with the child and the child expand it too? Or how do we help people become more enlivened and more joyful and curious and empowered and resilient? So I think that that's another way to think about this every time you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to introduce this experience, you know, based on what's going on now. How do I introduce something that is expanding that capacity? And I find that that word is now, you know, it's so resonant with people. They feel like, huh first they think like okay tolerating and enduring that's tough work you know <laughs> and it you know it does happen i'm not discounting that framework but when they hear capacity you they hear from you also as the facilitator or therapist i believe you're going to get better that things are going to get better and you've got it inside of you and may you know be one, two steps forward and one step back, but it's going to keep expanding. And, and these are the two areas that we're looking at because shouldn't out of all this work, joy and curiosity and pleasure and all those good things, resilience come out of this. Uh, now, you know, now that you mention it, that does sound more, much more strength-based than tolerance. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've studied now for how many years trauma, the the idea of trauma-informed work. So trauma-informed work has always clearly said that we are there in part to empower people mm -hmm. and to help them find that. So then I started to reframe all of this respectfully of, you know, the original idea of the window of tolerance, which I've, I've used, a lot of us have talked about and explained this to sometimes even in sessions to people. But I thought like, I, I, I need to give, you know, you need always need to have hope in therapy mm -hmm. there needs to be an element of hope because people took a lot of risk and courage to come into the session in the first place and you know and and you know uh, unveil all the things that they've been struggling with uh but shouldn't we give them that opportunity to think and i think i guess what i'm driving at here is we can do that through talk therapy to some extent but this has such possibility because they get to experience it they get to experience things that can be fun you know, actually, they are joyful. They We want to reintroduce play into people's lives in a positive way and, and have them be able to play and interact and have joy together. And then when the senses are there in that, this is really, wow, this is spectacular because yes. then we start to feel the restorative factors in our bodies. Right. 
Yes. Well, I know we are running short on time, but I wondered if you might talk about the bird's nest drawing. Yeah. So, you know, this is something, again, that's come up in the art therapy literature. And it was this whole idea of, you know, showing, a, you know, what, what a bird's nest looks like. It's just that kind of question, draw me a bird's nest. But what I think is actually the best variation of it is actually creating it, you know, in three dimensions, because it can be such an interesting and, and often positive experience to create that nest, even if it's with natural materials or clay. And you've done this with dyad. You've done this with uh-huh. parent-child. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, working together on creating that. Because I think the thing you always want to weigh in all of this, if it's going to probably lean into being a positive experience, a fun experience, again, that enlivening, curiosity, working together, playing together, we want to lean into materials that are more sensory-oriented. Drawing is very two-dimensional, right? It's mm-hmm. okay. You know, it mm-hmm. can be fun. But if you start to introduce all this stuff, you know, just natural materials, glitter, feathers, uh, clay, you know, and all these different kinds of things that are very tactile and three-dimensional, it becomes a, a very enlivening and fun experience. So we want to reinforce that positivity and have, again, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in that one if you're guiding and facilitating a parent and a child to have that third hand piece in there. And, mm-hmm. and help to model that so that you have the relational thing going. But the, mm-hmm. the senses are so much more stimulating if we made it, make it uh, the three-dimensional kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have one more question that I think could be going through listeners' minds because it goes through mine. Um, I've seen both play therapy and art therapy rooms that have so much stuff in them. (laughs) And and in fact, this is why I uh, first started getting involved in TheraPlay because I was seeing children that were so dysregulated and really out of control that they would just tear a room like that apart. Like there's no looking for it. Exactly. Like the theme destroying this. So I wonder, do you, do you, how, how you handle, you know, children that could be very overstimulated, you know, I'm, I'm imagining you keep that in mind with what you offer, what you have available. Could you speak to that for a minute? Before oh yeah, I think I think some of this, yeah, spaces. I think I think therapists themselves enjoy all this material, but I think so too. It's a it's a, it's a, a minimalist situation in my mind where you have it all, but you bring it out strategically because you're exactly right. There's such dysregulation going on and such overload with things that can be overstimulating. Now you do get, uh, you know, some children that when we talked about the window of tolerance model are more dissociated, numb, not feeling enlivened. Uh, but, the, you know, too many things can work against that too, you know, mm-hmm. because it's just too much. So, you know, I think we see a lot in children who have had disrupted attachment or have had a lot of adverse childhood experiences and overwhelm, you know, in the senses, too bright, too loud, too this, too that. And we need to be really conscious of that to have, you know, I find limiting it, you know, and and just 
pulling it out as needed out of the drawer, out of the cabinet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing I learned early on too, was that a lot of children that I worked with just, these are just child sessions really appreciated things being organized. In fact, if they came back to the room at another time and the scissors were not in the same place or basket where they were the last time, they'd say, wait a minute, Kathy, this is supposed to be on the second shelf, not the first shelf. <laughs> you know, they, they like that organization and they actually like the routine because they had no routine going on at home. You know, it was chaotic for yes. them. There's no fault to the, again, to the parents, they were struggling with whatever they were struggling with, but there, it was just a chaotic environment and to come to place that was peaceful and organized and not necessarily rigid because the arts, the expression, play is not a rigid thing, but to have it all feel safe. You know, we didn't even get to talk about that. I mean, yes. really our, our foundation for all of this is a sense of safety yes. you know, before the self-regulation. And that is right. your environment is part of that. Yeah. So excellent. Yeah. Question that, that that's just so important. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Well, I know we're out of time. I did already mention creative arts and play therapy for attachment problems, as that was a focus for the podcast, obviously, Attachment Theory in Action. But I know that you have lots of other books and resources and workshops, like give us everything that's Kathy Malchiotti. You know, I want more. What do I do? I think if you go on Google, you'll find it. <laughs> Google my name. This is a, your first challenge is spelling it correctly. So yes, I'm, ho- but, I'm hoping uh, I've been pronouncing it correctly. I, I yeah. looked oh, yeah. for places where I heard you say it. So <laughs> I figured I, I, I know she knows how to say your name. So uh, okay. yeah. um, the, the latest book might be helpful. Uh, it's not focused on attachment, but certainly it comes in there, which is trauma and expressive arts therapy, brain body, and, and imagination in the healing process. So that's kind of an overview of, I guess, in a way, you know, uh, Bessel van der Kolk told me when he wrote the endorsement for it, that it was uh, my life's work (laughs) came about in that, that book. And I think it was true because I started with this early work I talked about in domestic work through. Yes. um, And you have a website where, is that where people could find any workshops and things Uh that you're doing? Mm -hmm. So, well, I want to thank you again for your time and talking with us. I know listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation conversation we've had yeah i hope it was helpful yeah hour goes there half hours go by fast (laughs) bye-bye for now okay bye-bye thank you for joining us for this edition of attachment theory in action please follow our site tkcchaddock.org or subscribe on apple Podcasts, google play spotify or podbean for future podcasts if you enjoyed our podcast please leave a review and share with your professional network For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.